Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? Hello and welcome back to Off the Podium for another great athlete interview in our post-Tokyo, pre-Beijing six-month span that we have lots of stuff to fill the time with. My name is Colin. His name is Ben. Say hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. (laughs) Hi, Ben. That's the way Casper says hi. Um, I know. That's why I did it. (laughs) Ha ha ha. In jokes. Hilarious. He he says hi, Ben, as well, instead of Casper. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I think we we talked during Tokyo about this guest that uh, the the marathon Canada had this really uh, I would say kind of unexpected result or, or I guess at least great story with the result and that uh, our best finisher uh, in ninth place was uh, Melindy Elmore who had previously competed in the Olympics 17 years earlier in a completely a different event uh, different discipline whatever you want to call it uh, decided to increase by about 40 times her distance from previous Olympics and kind of made this huge comeback. And uh, I, I think I was excited when uh, we had lined this one up because it's a fun story to tell. And it, it, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of an underdog story. And we get to get all the way from the beginning to the end for her. Not the one end, thing, not the end, not the end. Well, let's not say that. This isn't 007. We don't just. Most recent. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I wish our research department failed us this time around because I would have loved to, uh, have known sort of records for appearances between Olympics. You know, is this uh, a 17-year mm. gap? You know, what's that, three Olympics in between hand? Like, is this, is this a record? Um, you know, I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure there have been other athletes who have had a bigger gap between, say, their first and their second Olympic, uh, you know, appearance. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, such an interesting story. And, you know, kind of it's not like she just hung up the boots after Athens and went off and did stuff and then came back. I mean, she attempted obviously to go to Beijing and, and London, which she talks about in here. And yeah, as you said, to, to change up the distance, you know, it's, it's not like she was doing 10,000s and meters and that sort of stuff and went to a marathon. I mean, from a 1500 to a, to a marathon, that's, that's a pretty big gap. So yeah, I will say listening and being involved in this interview has given me hope. And as you'll hear in this interview <laughs> that I, I could be joining her in Paris. So, Hey, there's, there's still hope for me. Look, for, for everybody out there who wants to be in the Olympics but thinks they have no shot, listen to this. At the very least, subscribe to her YouTube channel because I'm sure we'll get some pointers later on. It's better on, than but, this. Uh, it's it's, it's like, way stop better listening than this. to this. Like, the interview's great. I'm not saying Melinda's not great, but like this show in general, subscribe to her YouTube channel. It's better. No, no, no. Okay, let's, let's rephrase that. Listen to this, and then yes. when it's done, unsubscribe from us and subscribe to her YouTube because you're going to get a lot more fulfillment out of it. Exactly, yeah. Well, let's kick it off. The last episode any of our listeners are ever going to listen to our interview with Melindy Elmer. Well, we could be bringing you an interview right now with uh, an Olympian who had a distinguished career in the 1500 meter going all the way up until the end of her Olympic career in Athens. But we're actually thrilled we get to talk to somebody who 
decided to make a little bit of a comeback and uh, made a lot of waves uh, just recently in Tokyo by not only competing in the marathon for the first time in her Olympic career, but finishing in the top 10, which I have to say as a Canadian watching this, it was absolutely crazy just to see that you did this. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have Melindy Elmore on here today. Melindy, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good to be here. Uh, we're going to have to start, obviously, all the way back at the beginning. We always like to ask uh, our guests, you know, how you got into your sport, in your case, specifically just running. You know, is this something you just picked up during school? Uh, was it just a hobby uh, on the side? Yeah, it's funny because I always feel like I was a runner even before I was a formally trained runner competing. But I always just really loved to run as a little kid um, around the neighborhood, up to get the mail. Um, it was my favorite thing to do in PE class. Uh, I loved to play soccer because you could chase the ball. And then I realized you could take the ball away and it was a whole different sport, um, which is what I you know, started to get into when I was a little bit older in high school, um, kind of transitioned from soccer to, to more structured running. Now, one thing you about growing up, I believe you're from the beautiful place of Kelowna. Now, I uh, I lived in BC until earlier this year, been to Kelowna. I do quite like that uh, part of, of, of the country. Is uh, Kelowna renowned for, for its, its runners? Melinda, is this kind of a, a trend? Like, you know, you just kind of want to run around and keep warm in the winter and, I don't know, try and keep cold in the summer if you can? You know, yeah, we're pretty lucky. We're a medium-sized Canadian city, about 140,000 people, but... Um, going back the last 30 years, we had a really great coach. Um, well, two coaches, they were married and they started the track club here and they really produced some really amazing athletes and they were also teachers. So they would kind of get kids from the school system, which is how I ended up in the club, um, recruited from the school meets that they put on. Um, and you know, over the years there's been for a city of our size, some pretty, pretty good talent developed. In fact, on the Olympic team in uh, Tokyo, there were three of us from Kelowna, which wow. I thought was pretty cool for a small city. Yeah, very. That's a good ratio. I'm not good at math at the top of my head, but I can imagine <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty yeah, that's a pretty good ratio for a city that size. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, one of them even managed to win a medal. He was on the four by one team. Um, so, so there you go. We have a medalist from the track and field team who's who hails from Kelowna. Which one was it? Jerome Blake. Oh, okay. Second, second leg, yeah. That's one of the ones we didn't interview. We, we say, were the other one on. besides Andre that we didn't interview. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's on the and list then, now. Put, put in a good word yeah, for put us. Him on the list. He's a cool story. He, uh, you know, he moved here as a kid from, uh, and, yeah, it was, it's Jamaica because he's actually related to Johan Blake of the same last name. And I knew him. I, I coached in the track club Um about eight years ago when I was coaching, he was just a little, you know, kid joining the, the club, uh, bouncing around. So I saw him kind of grow up and same with the other athlete, John Gay, who ran the steeplechase. I also was mm-hmm. coaching the club when he was an athlete and I taught at his high school briefly. So I'm, I'm that old, but now the kids that are not kids, they're adults now on the track and field team. And we are all now together on, as, as colleagues on this team. Oh, I mean, that's what's sort of exciting. You get to go from being Olympian to coach to Olympian all over again. I mean, everything's come full circle for you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now, when you, uh, I guess, went from high school track meets, uh, did you eventually get recruited into uh, university? Is that where you started running competitively? Well, I was running competitively in high school um, and I was having really good results. So I knew that 
Um, I had opportunities to run post-collegiately. I thought at the time I would stay in Canada, uh, but um, I eventually was lured by sunshine and bougainvillea in February uh, to the campus of Stanford University in um, California. I went there and visited in February and it, it sealed the deal for me that I was meant to be in California. Um, <laughs> so I spent five years there and competed, you know, in the NCAA before moving back home. Is that, so for say, maybe our Australian uh, listeners who aren't so overly familiar with how that kind of works in North America, is that something that is common for, for Canadian athletes to kind of go and, and, and have a, have a crack sort of at the, the U.S. kind of college, that NCAA sort of system? Yeah, the NCAA system is a really amazing competitive opportunity for developing athletes. And it also, um, I mean, if you can get a scholarship there, it's it's expensive to go to university in the States. But if you can get an athletic scholarship that pays your tuition, room and board, you essentially come away with a degree without having spent more than about airfare. Um, so it's quite attractive for Canadians. And, you know, we have a similar enough education system. It is different. And, uh, you know, some of the nuances like writing SATs, which uh, is common in the in the U.S., uh, we're not used to doing that, but we have to to get there. There's some some funny things, but overall, it's not that hard to attend a, an American university if you're Canadian. And from a lot of the uh, runners we've talked to, both the the distance runners and the sprinters, we find that you know you'll compete in all different distances, but every kind of has this is your specialty. And I guess for you, was it the fifteen hundred meter like from the beginning, or did you just sort of eventually develop it, or did a coach say, you know what, I really want you to go for the fifteen hundred? Yeah, I was an 800, 1500 meter runner in high school. Um, I did one three thousand, and I hated it. It was terrible. <laughs> Um, but I ran cross country. So I ran world cross country championships when I was in grade 12 in Morocco. So I could do some distance. It was 6K. But um, yeah, I really felt like I was a middle distance runner and the types of workouts that I enjoyed doing were very much middle distance workouts, not distance workouts. So like fast, really fast lactic stuff on the track was really what I gravitated towards versus some runners come in and they, they love the long long runs and the tempo runs and the, that kind of endurance stuff, which is sort of ironic because then in the end I ended up being a marathoner. So I have to, I've, I've yeah. transitioned to doing that kind of work. But when I was younger, um, like put me on the track to do fast, hard reps and that, and I couldn't get enough of that. I mean, growing up, you know, we always like to ask this question to to our guests in terms of like Olympic aspirations. You know, was this something that uh, w- when you got into running, this was always a goal? Were you sort of active in other sports where, you know, Olympics was just a goal for no matter what sport you did? I mean, kind of, was that always on the, on the agenda for you? Well, I, I see in um, Colin's background, uh, an athlete from the 1996 Olympics, um, <laughs> winning a medal. And I would say that was the 1996 Olympics in Athens was, or in, sorry, in Atlanta was a really uh, meaningful uh, viewing experience for me. And I was 16 and I watched that whole, um, that, that whole Olympics and was so inspired by it. Uh, and a couple of performances really stood out to me. And one of them, um, well, there are two of them in particular, Clara Hughes, who won a bronze medal in the road cycling for women. And she went on to be Canada's most decorated winter and summer Olympian winning uh, speed skating medals and cycling medals. And I loved her post-race interview with Scott Russell, um, just super inspiring. And then and then closer to my heart was Leah Pels, and she 
finished fourth in the 1500 and also inspired me to great ends and sort of became a mentor after that. So I, you know, I was 16 and I just, um, you know, after that, watching that uh, Olympic meet, I, I just, you know, just started dreaming big that I wanted to aspire to be like Clara and Leah and kind of get to that level, not only athletically, but also they just really like resonated with me on a personal level of, of the kind of, I don't know, energy that they exuded. I love to just hear Claire, his name drop. I mean, she is Winnipeg's hometown. Well, shares Winnipeg's hometown here. There's a, there's a building I mentioned on our show before that uh, it's basically a giant mural of Cindy Clausen on one side and Claire Hughes on the other. <laughs> that, that's all Winnipeg right there. But, uh, uh, you know, looking at uh, your career just as it developed, you know, obviously you would go on to Athens, but just before there, uh, you had a really good showing at the Pan Am Games, you know, finishing in the, the exact same spot that you just mentioned, the fourth place spot. Uh, going into the Pan Am Games, I mean, was that, first of all, was that your first big multi-nation race that you had and then going into that particular final were you hopeful that you could have had a position that was close to the top three you know that's funny that you bring that up because i was thinking about the other day and how how much has changed since then so um making the pan am games wasn't really on my radar in 2003 i had just graduated from university and just moved back to canada but i finished fourth ironically at the canadian national championships um, to Leah Pels and a few others, and none of them had declared interest to go on this team to Pan Ams in, um, uh, sorry, in the Dominican Republic. I, I went to also to Guadalajara. I was getting them confused, but, anyways, I was on the way back with my parents. I had just gotten off the ferry, and their cell phone rang. And in 2003, not everybody had cell phones. Um, I didn't have one. And, you know, it was spotty reception. We were going through the mountains between Vancouver and Kelowna, and it was Athletics Canada asking me if I wanted this spot. They, they needed me to fax all this information, declaration um, of intent by midnight that night wow. because I had submitted the forms in advance because I didn't know that I would even make it. And it was, I think back now, I'm like, we had to find a fax machine and, you know, like it was, and they had a hard time getting a hold of me. Like we didn't have smartphones. We couldn't just pull this stuff up. Um, it, it felt like a different era where you're, you know, on the side of the road trying to figure out how to get someone these forms by, you know, in within a few hours. Um, so we basically turned around and left a day or two later. It was a really quick turnaround. So yeah, that was my first national team experience and uh, it was amazing. And I ran a personal best in that race, um, 410 something. And so I don't know that I even went into the race with the expectation of winning a medal. I just think I went in there to try and have a really great race and, and see how fast I could run. Does that then when you make that team and it's that close to an Olympic games, do you all of a sudden automatically think, well, Hey, if I, if I, I'm on the team now and I keep standards going for the next, uh, you know, 12 or so months, I could make that Olympic dream happen or was it kind of something that you thought well okay maybe it's it's a bit too soon Beijing's more realistic rather than Athens yes yeah, that's that's funny because um my coach believed in me for sure and thought that I could make the Olympics that following year I don't know if I really thought it was realistic um but what I committed to was the process so how good can I be if I really focus on this goal and I do everything right. And I know when I go to bed every night that I did everything in my power that day to be the best athlete I could be, which I'd never come to that level of commitment before with myself. So that meant really, you know, saying no to things, 
um, learning to say no to things and really putting my head down and, and sleeping well, eating well, doing my second runs, doing my physio, doing my strengths, doing everything that I thought I needed to do to be the best athlete. And thankfully that, you know, resulted in dropping eight seconds off my personal best and, and put me on the team. But it was more of a process oriented uh, decision than, than necessarily just the goal. Eight seconds off your person. I mean, that's pretty crazy. You don't hear Michael Phelps or, you know, Usain Bolt going, hey, I just dropped eight seconds off my personal best today. And that's in like Usain a Bolt 1500. Did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have no more time to run there. One, one, I mean, before the Olympics in 2004, I believe you competed at the, the university games, got a bronze there. I mean, can you give us just sort of a rundown on what a university games is like? I mean, are, are these held in high because I feel like we're always on the show we're talking about you know the Pan Ams the Commonwealth the World Championships you know things like that but sort of the university games is something that we don't often talk about I mean sort of how how is added as an event and it's kind of how's the prestige level I guess when it comes to you know track and field athletes by looking at a university games if you can go to one so there's um the the World University Games are the largest multi-sport event after the summer olympic games in terms of participation it's actually a huge huge event and it's really a blast i did two i did beijing and i did korea um oh one and oh three and they really are epic experiences and definitely i recommend people do that um, if they get the opportunity and i think the level of competition is really pretty pretty high and pretty competitive for that age group. There's not that many opportunities for, you know, kind of the mid to early twenties to get that world level exposure, especially in events like track and field or in distance running where you, you, you really peak towards your late twenties. Um, um, so I thought just the whole experience of going to this world global championship was um, really valuable for me. And in terms of actual fun, it is so much fun because I mean, you're there with a whole bunch of university age students. So how can it not be fun? Um, and it's the like keggers and pledging is just secretly behind the scenes and kind of all that kind of stuff. Well, but it's still athletes, right? So it's like maybe not quite Come on, Melindy. There's lots of it. Don't lie. Come on. Maybe after the race is over. <laughs> I, I, I did still manage to perform well. So, you know, I stuck around for a week after and yeah, there was a lot of fun. Um, but it's just, it's really cool. And the, the host cities and the hosts like LOCs, they, they put on a really incredible experience in both my, in my cases, like the opening ceremonies were mind boggling. And in fact, I went to the closing ceremonies at the Tokyo Olympics and it paled in comparison really. Um, so yeah, I think the world university games are definitely undervalued and, and are like a really great stepping stone for a lot of athletes. One of the things with uh, mid-distance running is that you don't have that in sprinting, you, you come right off the blocks and it's, it's basically, everyone feels you don't even pay attention to your competition. And I, I don't know if, if you're quite at the point where it is in maybe a distance run where it's all about biding your time. You want to get in behind a certain pack and wait for your moment. When you're at something like 1500 meters, is there kind of a healthy balance between running strategically or just going all out and not even caring about your competition? You just got to get ahead. Yeah, the 1500 is like almost like a chess game. Like there are definitely tactics involved and you don't you don't know what other, you know, what cards someone else holds. 
So I think that's partly why I loved it so much is there's the pure fitness and, and that even itself is like, you need to be aerobically fit and you need to be fast, fast. You have to be a fast, you have to be able to run, um, 56, 57 seconds for a 400. And you also have to be able to log a decent number of, of miles. So like there's that whole fitness component is really, I think, intricate for the 1500 meter runner. And then there's the whole tactical side. Um, and whether the race goes out fast and hard and you're just hanging on the back or whether it's jostly, there can be a lot of movement. There can be a lot of elbowing. There can be shoving and pushing and like guarding your space, anticipating when someone's going to make a move, deciding if you're going to be the one who makes the move first, covering moves. So it's definitely a game, like a game and you have to keep your head in it and you have to stay really, really, uh, really on, um, during the race. Unlike the marathon where I like try to switch my brain off for half the time, this is a race where you really have to be firing on all cylinders. You are talking before about that sort of journey that get you to Athens and obviously make the team. We always love to hear sort of Olympic experiences from everything from the moment you're announced, getting your uniform, if you do the opening ceremony, everything's like that. And I guess the thing I'm intrigued more about Athens is that we've, we've only had a couple of athletes who went to 2004 and I don't really know if I've sort of heard – kind of what those Olympics were like, because it's obviously a unique Olympics back to the the birthplace of of the Olympic Games. And, I mean, I remember watching, you know, glued to Athens and loving every single moment. As an Australian, we had a very successful Olympics, so we're very fond of Athens. But kind of, you know, take us through that that moment, going to the Olympics, everything around outside of competing and experiencing Olympics for the first time. Hold on, you want me to think back 17 years right now? (laughs) Absolutely. We really like to test people on this show. Come on. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's like a different lifetime. Um, Yeah, Athens was really cool. I think the thing that stands out to me about Athens was the fact that it was in Athens. Mm. Um, And so we, and because it wasn't during COVID, we could actually leave the village. And so there was a competition and then there was the going out and like seeing the Acropolis and hanging out in the Greeks plazas and eating dinner at midnight. And, you know, it's like still 35 degrees out and you're having these just amazing feasts. Um, and like the epicness of being at that, the Athens Olympics, like the birthplace of the Olympics, like a lot of history there. Um, and, yeah, it was just, um, both, the both experiences were just so incredibly different, but, um, I, I also just feel like I had a lot more of an Olympic experience that time because for this particular games, for the marathons, marathon runners, we weren't even staying in the Olympic village. We were up in Sapporo in hotels. We weren't with the rest of the Olympic team or the Canadian team or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of more like just a road race that happened to have the Olympic banner on it than being at the Olympics. I know you're probably going to have pretty good memories of the competition in Athens. Um, you know, obviously one of the things I find interesting is just how big the stakes are there and what the competition must be like, because you end up pulling off. I mean, I think you said prior, you, you'd done about 410 for the, the Pan Am games. Maybe uh, I'm guessing it was probably your career best uh, performance in Athens. And yet uh, you basically made as far as the heats. I mean, what was it like? Where did you know going in, it's going to be this stiff of a competition? Yeah, well, no, I ran, I ran a lot slower actually in the heats at Athens than I'd been running all year. So I ran 409 in the heats and I had run 402 and 404 and 405, like much quicker to qualify. But um, a couple things happened. One is that I'd been just chasing races all spring and summer to get 
to make the team and had been already to Europe twice and all over California. So I think in some ways I was sort of, I was sort of peaked already before I even got there. Um, and then unfortunately a couple weeks, only two weeks before I got a virus. So I was kind of run down also just sick and run down. So I wasn't kind of at my, my best, best going into it and fell flat in the race. Like I just, I was with the pack. I was in a great position. I was talking to my coach about this the other day, actually, we were kind of reminiscing cause he was in support with me as well. Um, that when it came time to kick with about 200 meters to go, I just didn't have the gears to, to pick it up and to kick. And, um, you know, and it was, it was disappointing when I'd had really good finishes in the rest of my races that year. But, you know, I, I walked away and I was definitely very disappointed, but at that time, of course, I had no idea what the future would hold. I really believed that I would be back and I would learn from that experience and be, I'd be better the next time. It's interesting you mentioned chasing races because I think the first time I ever heard that term was during Tokyo. Donovan Bailey was on talking about how the American male track stars were underperforming and he used that phrase. I think I listened to his podcast and he said the same thing and said you need to, people need to learn the lesson not to chase races. Is that, is that something that's common? And what, what's the, the thinking behind I want to get in as many competitions as possible and what type of effect does that have in the long run? You know, it's not even so much as getting in as many competitions as possible. For many people, it's qualifying. It's really hard to qualify for the Olympics. Like the times, the standards that are required to make the track and field competition are based on an average of a top eight finish from the past four Olympics or something like that. Don't don't quote me how people can hear this, but it's it's um it's, it's, it's statistically created and it's a very difficult global standard to even achieve. And in Canada during that era in particular, we actually imposed even harder standards than the global standard. So you had to qualify through like the world federation, but then if you were to be selected by athletics, Canada, you needed to run even faster because they wanted to think that you were going to win a medal. And that was what they were basing their selection criteria on. So to make the team, you were peaking basically all spring summer and you were trying to get into fast races to get the performances now i mean the other i mean the other scenario where people are chasing races uh so maybe just to qualify and then in the other case it's it's many of these athletes profession and that their contracts rely on them having a certain number of appearances or they get appearance fees or that's where the prize money is to go to races and they don't make money if they don't race so it's it's sort of like you can't just sit around and wait for the olympics and not get, you know, not, not put in, put yourself in the opportunity to, to support yourself during the rest of the year. It's crazy to kind of think that and kind of, you know, I always like hearing about, you know, particularly when you've got these opportunities to go to numerous, say, uh, multi-sport events, um, you know, University Games, you're talking about Pan Ams, uh, Commonwealth Games, which I'll ask a question about in a second, because, you know, some athletes we get on the show, they compete in a sport where they don't go to any multi-sport events except for the Olympics, whereas obviously athletics is kind of the the standard, uh, you know, sport that you'll have at all of these games. And, I mean, is it is it a sort of talking about choosing these races and all those sort of things? Like, you've got to look at a calendar, I can imagine, every single year and go, okay, this takes precedence because it's a more prestigious event. It's It's got a stronger field. It's going to push me further versus, well, I could go to this event and win a medal, but it's not going to hold the same weight if I get fifth in a final at the world champs. Yeah. And that also depends on the event area. So for example, in the marathon, um, you only do one or two marathons a year, right? So unlike the hundred where you really can do back to back to back weekends. 
So most marathoners will forego um, Pan Ams at this point because they're often in hot places and, and an ideal, ideal time of year, or maybe Commonwealths. Um, and in fact, the World Championship versus Olympic uh, marathon is a very different makeup as well because like Ethiopia and Kenya will have 100 people from their countries that can qualify three and either, you know, for either of those teams, but their, their top men and women will only pick the Olympics. So the worlds might roll down to like their 12th best runner who is still better than most other athletes in the whole world. Cause they're just so deep. Um, but generally speaking in athletics, uh, track and world championships and Olympic games are prestigious and, and really not to be missed. The one I'd like to quickly ask you about is Commonwealth games in Melbourne in 2006. I mean, running in the MCG, you make the final. Um, now the MCG, for Australia is, is, is a coliseum. It's, a, it's an icon. This is, you know, our most prestigious venue. And, you know, I've, I've been to many matches there. I, I've done tours of it. And, I mean, never quite even remotely got close to performing at the MCG. But, I mean, what's that experience like? Because, I mean, that was from memory attended pretty well every single day, eighty to 100,000 people every single day. Had you ever sort of run in front of a, a crowd like that and kind of experienced something on, on that level? Well, I had in um, 04 in Athens, there were 80 or 100,000 people as well. And that was actually the, one of the things that, that stood with me the most was how noisy it is in one of those stadiums, for sure. Um, when everybody is yelling in a stadium and it's a bowl and you're on the track and the, and the crowd is following you around as you run around the track, it's, you know, it's like they're doing a wave and they all start yelling while you run by. And it's, it's really deafening. And it's really hard to focus, especially when you're used to running under more normal running conditions with 10 to 20,000 people who don't make nearly as much noise. Um, and the lights are on, it's bright, you've got the jumbotron, you've got cameras along the track. Like it is very exhilarating. Um, it's really a ton of fun because I think ultimately we want to run fast, but we're also performers and you get a lot of energy from, from the crowd and you want, uh, you can hear them. And I do remember the Commonwealth games so well, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And, uh, Sarah Jameson was in the race an Australian who had a good shot of winning. She didn't Just end up winning. But mm. Yeah. But like, I know the crowd was so behind her. Right. And, um, uh, there were just, you can feel that energy, the hometown crowd for someone in the race. Um, so yeah, no, I, I really love that uh, full stadium experience. And that was another kind of, you know, change this year in Tokyo where we had an empty stadium and we had an Olympic Games. Yeah, I, I know that you continue to compete after Athens. Uh, I guess ultimately you, you didn't make it into the Olympics again in Beijing. Had you decided already at that point that you wanted to step away from the sport or, or I guess when did you decide that you wanted to kind of hang it up briefly because we're going to get to what happened after that? Yeah. So briefly. So yeah, I was disappointed, but motivated after Athens had some really good, good races in the interim years, but a couple things happened leading into 08. So I, one of them was that I broke my, my navicular bone in my left foot in the summer of 07, just before world championships. So I was nursing a bad injury for eight months prior. And then, as I mentioned earlier, athletics Canada had these harder standards to qualify for Olympic teams. So I was like, globally qualified, but I wasn't selected by Athletics Canada to go to the Beijing Olympics. There were also eight women who some like two weeks before the Olympics were, um, were, uh, were expelled from the games because of doping, um, 
they, they didn't have positive doping tests, but they tampered with the doping procedures. Um, so it was like, it was like triple whammy. So that was really disappointing. Um, I continued on to 2012, but never really got back to my former fitness and then knew in 2012 that I was ready to retire, take a step back from the sport, do other things in life. Um, didn't ever have aspirations that I get to this level of sport again, but I actually, in the interim between doing track and retiring in 2012 and picking up running again in 2019, uh, got into doing long course triathlon pretty seriously for for a few years as well. So kind of pivoted and found a new sport um, and then found my way back to running. Is that something that when you're doing those long course triathlons that you think, well, I could just shorten these down a little bit, maybe triathlon, I could go to the Olympics again, uh, you know, in a, in a different sport. Was that something that you realistically thought or was it just kind of you were doing it to keep competitive, keep fit, you enjoyed it, something different as a challenge? I actually did end up racing professionally in long course triathlon, but it's very different than ITU triathlon, which is in the Olympics. Um, so for, for triathlete nerds or cycling nerds out there, um, it, Olympic level ITU triathlon is draft legal. So your swimming really matters. You have to get out of the water in a pack cause you can draft on the bike and then it comes down to a run. I'm not a good swimmer. Um, that did not come naturally to me and I didn't grow up swimming. So I couldn't do that kind of draft legal sport. I'd get my butt kicked in the water and the, the day would be long over. Um, so I did 70.3 in Ironman races. So like the long distance and that's non-drafting. So I got my butt kicked in the water and then had hours to try and pick it up on the bike and then a run afterwards. So I was able to eventually run my way back into contention if I waited long enough and rode hard enough to make up for my pitiful swims. And as far as getting into marathons, you know, years after you decided you wanted to, to get out of athletics, uh, was the motivation just for fun or was it you want to get back in competitively from the start? Yeah, it was completely 100% for fun. And I had decided I was going to step away from triathlon because it was too time intensive. And um, I had two little boys at that point. So when I got into marathoning, um, my second child was three months old. And I was just running for fun. And I, I joked that I'd had too much coffee that morning and came home from this great run. And, you know, my head was spinning. I said to my husband, oh, I think I'm going to just do a marathon as a bucket list idea. And uh, he actually ran the 1500 in the 92 and 96 Olympics for Canada. So, and he's born in Winnipeg, speaking Winnipeg, uh, Graham Hood. Um, and so he said, okay, well, I'll write you up a, uh, a training plan. But you know, I wanted to do like Chicago a month later with my friends. And he said, that's ridiculous. You can't do that, but you could do Houston in three months from now. So he wrote me a training plan and basically took me from like barely being able to run to my first marathon in, um, in January of 2019. And, uh, Oliver was six, seven months old then my baby. So we brought him with us and I ran, uh, 232. It was my debut marathon and it was so much fun. I loved the training. I loved the racing. It felt really easy. And Graham and I looked at each other after my race and we're like, well, guess we better try for the Olympics now. <laughs> <laughs> now here's where you can confirm if Wikipedia is reliable in any way, because, uh, uh we'd mentioned off air. I was kind of excited because I saw something on here, which is, uh, your, your personal best half marathon time was actually in Winnipeg in 2019. Is that right? It is. Yes. 
which which one did you run? Because I actually started doing half marathons um, maybe about five years ago. So I try to run all the half marathons that are here in Winnipeg. And uh, if it was one of the major ones, I might have actually been next to you for about five seconds before you pulled away. I did the one that was the um, marathon, Manitoba Marathon. Oh yeah. And it was the half one. I was in that. That was actually the last one that we had because even before COVID we had like a massive snowstorm in October, which canceled our last one. So mm-hmm. I remember that. And that was a half marathon. So I, I finished, I think around an hour and 50 minutes. So you definitely beat me. <laughs> I can at least say I ran was with that an surprising, Olympian. surprising, <laughs> Colin? Uh, are you expecting to win? Uh... <laughs> I mean, one eleven—that's an incredible time. Had you done half marathons at that point? No, I was just really getting into uh, road racing at that point. So that was, yeah. So Ollie, my—that's that was his first birthday. Actually, I, I missed his first birthday to go run that race. Um, so that was just kind of like my comeback. I'd done the marathon, and I figured I should do a half marathon, and that's the last half marathon I've done because then, of course, COVID came and wiped out everything after that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to do another marathon or half marathon and love to get back to Winnipeg and do that one again. The thing that I'm learning from this, and I always like to just pathway out potential Olympic options for myself, Melindy, uh, now just working out, you know, I don't want to mention your age on air, but just working out how all that played out. You were a little bit older than I am now when you decide, like, oh, marathon, let's do it. I've always wanted to do a marathon. Um, so I'm just working this out that I've still got time, that all of a sudden I could do a marathon, run a good time, and then maybe contact your husband, give me a plan, and then <laughs> contact the Australian Olympic Committee. And Paris, maybe not really, but LA, uh, Home Olympics 2032. I mean, look, I'm just saying, I, I you're giving me hope. What's wrong with Paris? It's still three years out. True. I'll only be what thirty-seven, <laughs> so I guess took, I'm still, you know, <laughs> three it years. Melindy, it only took Melindy two years, Ben. Like, come on, you could do it in three, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, my my running career probably stems back to year eight athletics, where I finished last in the last division of the hundred meters. Um, <laughs> but I guess I've got some time to to work on those skills. Do I? <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's along with what Ben's saying, one of the things I always found interesting uh, with distance running is that y- you see a big difference in the age groups. Whereas in something that's shorter distance, it's probably always going to be the, the 25s and under who are at the top. But uh, in most of the races that I've run in, it's that 35 to 45 age bracket that seems to always be at the top. I mean, is it just patience over the years that, uh, you know, the, the young people just burn themselves out too quickly? I and mean, what's your experience with that? Well, my joke is that, and there's truth to this joke, so it's not really that funny, is that um, while they may have, you know, they may have a lot going for them on the age side, I have 20 more years of running and aerobic training than they do a 20-year-old, right? So that's got to be worth something. Um, So actually in Sapporo, I was ninth. Um, The woman who was 10th is Australian. She's 44. The woman who finished right after her in 11th from Uganda is in her 40s and set a world master's record of 219 last year. And then uh, in 13th was Natasha Wodak from Canada, and she's going to be 40 this year. So 100%, this is an event that doesn't have uh, that kind of age barrier. Um, and then at the same time, the top people are in their 20s. So it's, it is pretty cool that it's an event that, you know, you can be, you can span a, at least a two decade, um, well, 20s, 30s, 
20, 30, 40s, actually. It could be three <laughs> decades, right? Which is incredible to think that you think of maybe the ultimate athletic ability of any event in Olympic Games, you know, what is the true test of, of human ability? It's the marathon. And it's kind of, it's it's great to see that there is such a, an age spread because, I mean, that that's inspirational. Like, in, all jokes aside about my athletic ability, I mean, as someone who's 34 right now and would love to run a marathon one day, sure, Olympics, but, you know, even just the local marathon and finished dead last, it's kind of what testing yourself, right? And then you've picked it up and then managed to transform it from a, cool, I'll just do this to, look, I'm back at the Olympics. So it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a very unique thing to think about when it comes to such a test of humans' ability and that the age really isn't much of a barrier in the sport. Yeah, and you know what I love about the marathon is that it has such wide appeal. Um, it doesn't have to just be an elite sport. There's 40, 50,000 people who sign up for these these major marathons and they'll train and they're doing going through the same process that I am. Um, they're, you know, getting up early and they're doing their run and they're, they're, they're tired and they're dragging themselves out of bed and they're looking forward to it. And I coach people who do the marathon and they keep coming back for more and more. Um, but it's something, again, like you could be really fast and elite at one end and you could just be someone who your goal is just to complete it, whatever it takes. And that's also super inspiring. Um, so it's, it's a super, I think a really great event that way. And I think it's something that people can understand more so than a lot of events that they've never done or never been you know able to be part of or don't understand. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. How fast can you cover 42.2 kilometers? <laughs> Yeah, I always find it interesting watching the TV coverage for the athletes that the media obviously can predict and the ones they can't. And, you know, in Tokyo, of course, there was going to be a lot of talk about Andre de Grasse or Penny Alexiak. Um, I don't think I heard your name come up until it was within the last couple of kilometers of that marathon, uh, maybe a little bit before that. And I think that was one of the, the great stories coming out of Tokyo is that you did come in either as an underdog or somebody just under the radar. And uh, maybe that was a matter of the fact that you only got into this, you know, two years prior to that or the layoff that you had, it just was a, a big story. But um, did you find going into this that, that you had that expectation? I could potentially do a top 10 finish. And then uh, as far as like how the media, you know, accepted you afterwards, like, was this a big deal? A lot of people all of a sudden took an interest because of the layoff you had or the the short term that you were able to get into Olympic position? Mm, two questions there. Let me keep these straight. Okay. First of all, my expectations were absolutely to finish in the top 10. So that's what I was training for all, all spring. Um, I dreamed big and I dreamed bigger than top 10. Um, I, I leave anything, anything out there as a possibility and don't want to limit myself. So someone like Molly Sedell, who from the U.S. finished third, had an amazing, amazing performance and was overjoyed. Um, her personal best coming in was slower than mine. And I was ranked 20th coming in and she was ranked about 23rd. So amazing things can happen in the Olympics when everything goes right. Um, and she had a dream day. And I dreamed of that dream day um, as well. And I was very pleased with my top 10 performance, but that, that was what I expected. Um, and then in terms of reaction, I actually, uh, I found that, that there was a fair amount of interest in my story leading into the games from, from what I, you know, cause I'm on the receiving end of requests and that sort of thing. And that, um, a lot of people thought, you know, coming to the Olympics at 41 with two kids, 17 years later was, um, 
kind of a cool thing. And so, you know, that, that was cool to me that people were interested in hearing that. I, uh, I took a break after I got back and just went camping with my family and just kind of reconnected. So I actually haven't done a whole lot since then. And I also work, um, so I've been kind of busy. So you guys are like kind of the first people that I've really chatted to about this since I got back. So we can sell this as an exclusive. Will this be our first ever ex- <laughs> exclusive on off the podium? Can we? Yeah. And I'll word? send you the, the invoice later. Cool. Awesome. No, we expect it. Ab- absolutely. You know, uh, that that's completely expected, which I mean, I just, I love sort of the story with everything around it, but particularly just again, that we're going to have a bit of a run, a bit of fun. Oh, yeah, oh, you could go to the Olympics. Like, I mean, when you cross that line and you, you achieve that top 10, I mean, you're back at the Olympics after all these years in a, in a different event. Like, is there relief? I mean, you've just run a marathon. You're like, oh, just, I, need to, I need to rest. Like, I mean, was there a, sort of just an emotional moment that you had when you, you finished and to, to realize the achievement that you had actually done? <laughs> well, if you watched my race, which people remind me of because I haven't even watched it yet, because it's two and a half hours long. Who has that kind of time? Colin does. <laughs> um, yeah, if you watched my race, um, I, I crossed the finish line and I sat down right away and and my dad's like, oh, you were okay? I was, I was so worried. You sat down and didn't move. But I was honestly so exhausted when I finished. Um, like the last 7K was just such a grind to get to the finish line and it took all all my powers physically and emotionally and mentally to get to the line and to not give up any time, as little time and, and no positions, you know, I didn't, no one passed me and that was my goal, but, uh, I really worked hard that last seven K. So I was just, to be honest, I was just so, so tired and so happy to be done running that the, the, uh, the, the success of the result didn't really, hit me right away or maybe never really did because I was just so tired. I just wanted to sit down, <laughs> lay down. And then it was like, okay, now I want to, you know, go eat and like all the things in the moment. And then, um, I'm really like only now really starting to get a chance to reflect on it. Um, again, it was more like so cool to make the team like, like that was such a big deal for, for me and for my family when I was selected to the team in June. That was such a relief, um, especially with COVID because it had delayed everything a full year, right? So it was kind of a bit of an anxious year, like not get injured, not have COVID, cancel these games. Will I get selected? Because there were five of us who had qualified for the team and only three could go. Um, so that was just that was just so exhilarating actually getting named to the team and, and, and going. And then, and then it was like, okay, now I've got a job to do. And my job is to be top 10. And I kind of knew going in that that's what I expected of myself. One thing I'd just like to quickly touch on, you mentioned before about sort of the differences in, I guess, a mental side of things to say a 1500 and say a, a marathon. And you sort of mentioned about maybe switching off a little bit in that marathon kind of mentally, because, you know, it's sort of a long race. I mean, what, how mentally you mentioned those last seven Ks when you, 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 you're feeling done, like, Oh, I've got to push through this. I don't want to sort of get overtaken. Like, what do you do? How do you kind of push yourself to finish that race and kind of go through those final moments of a marathon? Well, you know, everybody is hurting in the last part of a marathon. Um, that's just part of the sport and part of the event. So I just would kind of think to myself, 
well, everyone is hurting. <laughs> and as long as you keep me moving forward, it's going to be really hard for anyone to catch you. So you have to keep moving forward. But there, were, there was a time that just all of a sudden I was just hit with fatigue and nausea. And I thought, I just got to stop. And But I didn't let myself. I was like, no, you just got to keep going one step in front of the other. Um, and then the kind of an amazing thing happened. And I don't know if it's just all the years of training again and kind of working on, on skills. Um, but I had written down some words before that I wanted to think of when I knew that things got tough. And I didn't actively think, oh, I'm going to think of those keywords, but they just, I had practiced them, I guess, enough that they just started coming, coming into my uh, consciousness and it gave me something else to focus on. Um, and it, it just kept me kind of moving forward even, and it kind of overrided like the desire to want to stop, um, which really is, if you read about physiology, like your brain is going to tell you to stop well before it actually really uh, needs to for health and safety reasons. It's kind of like, like a protective mechanism that, yeah, you're, you're hot, you're tired, you're fatigued. You want, you're, 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 you want to stop, but you don't actually need to. So it's just kind of learning to ignore those signals. It's kind of like people listening to this show. Often they get five minutes in and go, this is crap. Stop listening to it. But actually <laughs> secretly it's saying, give it a chance. It gets better. So, you know, that's <laughs> Once they get past mine and Ben's intro, when we get yeah. to the interview, that's when they realize, hey, it's worth it. These guys suck. I thought I was going to listen to someone good. And then all, oh, there, there she is. There you go. We asked Evan Dunphy about this. You know, he was racing probably a few days removed from you. Same area, Sapporo. Uh, the heat in Tokyo. I mean, we, we just heard over and over again how brutal it was. And to me, it's always amazing that they even bother to have things like marathons during the Olympics because – nobody really runs races that are that long during like the hottest months of the summer, let alone the heat you're experiencing in Tokyo. Uh, he told us about how, how much he had to prepare that almost all his prep was just about how do I run a race in this heat? Did you have that type of preparation? Did you know how hot it was going to be? And had you ever had to run like that before? Yeah. So Evan and I were together for 15 days prior to the to our races. Well, 14, he was a day before me. And so we were doing a lot of the similar strategies. And we also have an amazing team with Athletics Canada and our sports science and our physiologists kind of led by Trent Stellingworth out of Victoria. And then Gareth Stanford from UBC was with us on site. Um, and our coaches, our whole staff worked so closely with us in our final prep to really refine our, our fueling, heating, our fueling, cooling pacing strategies and we practiced um what we were going to do and we meticulously planned it out and evan of course is extremely meticulous he knows down to like the the gram and the milliliter of of fluids and and carbohydrates that he needs to to have the level of performance he wants but yeah we had we had planned out so well in advance and and even in like the months leading in i live in Kelowna. it was 46 degrees for a week in june and that's abnormally hot but we get heat. So I practiced running in the heat and I practiced um, how, you know, the humidity was a bit of a difference in Japan than, than the dry heat in BC, but I practiced how I feel in heat and what that does to my, you know, my pace. Um, and it meant in the race that I really had to be conservative and not, um, and really, really hold my pace, uh, hold myself accountable to a certain pace um, throughout the race and not kind of like, you know, throw caution into the wind and just go for it because I knew it would come back to haunt me. So, uh, yeah, the, the preparation was was really key for both of us. We've spoken to a few athletes on the show about 
the experiences of the, the ceremonies in, in Tokyo and sort of the uniqueness of it. Now, uh, you mentioned the closing ceremony. Two-part question on this. Firstly, I believe it was a bit of a unique story how you were even able to go to the closing ceremony because I believe it wasn't necessarily the, the plan. And, and secondly... Tell us about the reaction that other athletes had to the Canadian tuxedo because our Australian commentators <laughs> loved it. And I was living in Canada when they released all the merchandise at the Bay and I nearly bought one. I think they look epic, the, the jackets. But uh, were you getting athletes coming up to you going like, dude, like these are epic. Like, you know, give me one. I'll swap you this. I want one. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't meant to go to the closing ceremony as you as you mentioned, but we had to get from Sapporo back to Canada and we couldn't do it all in, in one go because there was an airport transfer in Tokyo. And, and that happened to coincide with the night that was uh, a closing ceremony. So that was the day after my race. So, so we transferred the marathon women to um, the Olympic village and to closing ceremony. And we, we ran, we, you know, Evan was there because he'd had his medal ceremony in the stadium the day previous. Um, I was so beat up because I had just run a marathon the day before. I couldn't walk, was just in so much pain. So that was actually kind of a painful experience going to closing ceremony because they drop you off like three miles before the the stadium because all the buses bring these athletes and you have to walk in so far. And we were wearing the Canadian tuxedos and it's like 40 degrees and 100% humidity and we're wearing thick denim jeans, thick denim jacket, mask, hat, a black t-shirt, like... (laughs) we were just dying and you know you don't you're not you can't bring anything with you like a backpack with so you're just like want to just i don't know like jump in a swimming pool and cool off but um it was it was i was glad to go to the ceremony because you know yeah i get fomo you don't want to miss anything but um walking that far in the almost <laughs> close the day after a marathon was really i'm just thinking now that you say that like with the buses you think they would think okay the marathon athletes can go up the front so they don't have to work the three months and then secondly yeah. now that you talk about this uh you know it looks great but yeah logistically maybe not the smartest decision for uh <laughs> the closing attire at a hot olympics like maybe keep for the winters in beijing right <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of envious of the Australian closing ceremony outfit because they were just like dresses for the women, lightweight dresses and shorts and a t-shirt for men. That's what we needed to That's wear. That, okay, this, this is this is where the, the, the different cultures come into play. We're all on board the summers. We're like, yeah, we know it's going to be hot, cool. But come the winters, we're the ones in the corner freezing our asses off. Whereas you guys in the winters are like, oh, we've got, you know, we've got the jackets, the puffy ones. And that, and That's when we break up on. the t-shirts. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're the ones wearing those in the winters while we're, you know, like spotting Australian at the Winter Olympics. It's not that hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, just in closing here, uh, we did mention we have uh, a series of questions, which uh, I don't think they were doing this in Athens. They sadly didn't do it for Tokyo. So uh, we get to give you an induction here into something that uh, Team Canada has done for a couple of Olympics now, uh, which they give a questionnaire to all the athletes. They get to fill it out in their own handwriting. Some of it involves drawing pictures. Some of it involves uh, sports-related questions. Some of it's just fun questions. But just quick-fire answers. You can kind of give us your take on this. Uh, ben, you've got yours ready, right? I sent it to Always. You. Colin, I'm always right, ready we'll for this. Yes, All right. absolutely. Okay, so uh, starting it off with your favorite sports movie is? Deal of Dreams. Oh, good, good one. Answer. I don't think we've heard that yet. No, I don't think so either. Um, your favorite ever Olympic moment is 
God, that's so hard. There's so many good ones. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to go with Leah Pels in her fourth place finish in Atlanta because that started my career. I, I, I didn't even get to follow up, but I mean, you said you competed alongside her later on. I mean, what was that like? Somebody that you probably thought, oh, I'll never get to meet this person, let alone compete with them. Yeah, no, she's been awesome. She kind of was a, a mentor to me when I was in high school and we, we were like pen pals back before like email. Pen pals. And oh, she like, would run with me, <laughs> come up here. She, she did, I did a few workouts with her um, and she's still uh, involved with the, with some of the athletes on the team as a sports psych. Um, so I think she's like got a great legacy. Uh, this is next one is a little bit of a tricky question, uh, but uh, when I was little, I always thought. <laughs> I would be a teacher. There you go. We got an answer. That's always one of the tricky questions. <laughs> I always like it when people literally answer that with I'm hungry. Like that was just a <laughs> little. So um, if you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Vancouver again. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it's it's on 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 the cards. I was going to say you're going to say going to say Kelowna. I'm going to change my answer, Melbourne, because they did a great job with Commonwealth, and I love that city. The, the thing with, I mean, look to me, I I it is my favorite city in Australia, even more so from where I'm from. I absolutely love Melbourne, but Melbourne's kind of always that city I love that. I remember in the lead up to Rio when there was kind of like, oh, is Rio going to happen? Like they might have like Melbourne's the, oh, they're ready to go. Like yeah. Melbourne could host the Olympics tomorrow, basically. Really? So it's, yeah. uh, I mean, they label it the sporting capital of the world. So yeah. it's, it's ready, you know, it just is. saying. And the, the flat whites there are spectacular. Because they're proper flat whites, Melinda. This is the thing. It's an Australian, it's an Australian invention and everyone else around the world butchers the flat white and you come to yeah. Australia, you get a proper flat white. They make them at Starbucks now, and I'd only ever had them in Australia, and then I ordered one here, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. To, to, let's, let's clear this up right now for people outside of Australia. Flat white is called a flat white because it has no foam. It's flat, right? A latte has a bit of foam, and then a cappuccino has a lot of foam. So th yeah. there's your distinctions between the coffees. So outside of Australia, flat white, no foam, get it right. <laughs> uh, next one. In my spare time, I most like to hang out with my kids. Great answer. Proper answer. Colin, you should probably answer I'm gonna that have to, I'm going to need to answer that next time. <laughs> Stop podcasting and hang out with your children. <laughs> Come on. Um, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? Sometimes doing your best is not enough. Sometimes you need to do what is required. Oh, that's good. That's deep. How about your favorite workout is? Um, six, seven kilometers, six, sorry, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one kilometers at marathon pace. Okay. Cool. So what is that like done in intervals? You do seven, you take a rest, then you do six. Yeah. You get 90 seconds between them. So you do a warm up and a cool down. It's about 37 kilometers total for the day. Um, and you do intervals at your marathon goal pace. I was thinking for a second, I'm like, you know, that actually sounds like fun until you said 90 seconds, 90 minutes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and it depends what your pace is. For me, going into the Olympics, it was about 324 per kilometer. So that gets pretty hard. I'm just, I just like Colin's uh, always hidden agendas. He's writing down like notes for his own training. These are my so, tips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, they, these are, these you are can email again. me later. I'll, I'll hook you up. I know someone. <laughs> there you go, Colin. Um, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? I would say Barack Obama. 
Good answer. Can we can we come to that lunch too? Just just give yeah. a sneaky invite. <laughs> also, just going back to a, a previous one, did you ever get the chance to meet Clara Hughes? I've met Clara, and she's amazing. Uh, she, so when I went to the Pan Am Games, speaking of that, in 03, um, I walked into our apartment, the Canadian team I was put in with other athletes, and there was a bike against the wall in the living room. And I just kind of freaked out and was like, oh, my God, is like Clara Hughes staying in my apartment? And I didn't run into her for two days because we were off schedule. And then I was like a total fangirl when I finally got to meet her and was a little starstruck. Um, and then we both were in Calgary at the same time training and I would uh, run around the oval uh, at UFC around the speed skating oval. There's like a two lane track. So I do my intervals there while she was training and she was always like so gracious and would say hi. And I just thought that was just so cool too. <laughs> I'm going to go there and I'm going to do that. <laughs> now I know how to make clear. I don't find her there anymore though. Cause she doesn't do that sport anymore. You got to find her on some remote trail hiking somewhere <laughs> in another country. Uh, uh, you go, Colin. I think it's your oh, turn. The, thank the you. professionalism on this show is shining That's through. That's right. <laughs> um, my favorite sandwich is? Oh, something with avocado and pesto and mm. chicken breast and tomato and lettuce. Nice. And really nice. good bread. I was going to say, is, bread's always important. Like, are, are you specific type of bread that you always go towards? No, it just has to be good, like artisan bread, like a nice sourdough or a nice, mm. like really good soft, not nothing too hard because you don't want to steal away from like the contents inside, you know, can't be too yeah. thick, but it has to, it has to complement things nicely. I like it. I like it. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Any superpower? Um, well... I think it would just be to be um, indefinitely patient and calm. And I'm saying that from a parenting perspective. (laughs) (laughs) And Colin. Uh, I I can relate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The best candy in the world is I keep getting the, I'm I'm this close to dinner. Why do I keep getting all the the food questions? Best candy in the world. Dark chocolate. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. I'm, I'm, I am excited for the day somebody answers white chocolate, but I love dark chocolate. Like just you know, <laughs> white chocolate, sneaky favorite. And I love this question because uh, also too, as as a hockey fan, I can guess maybe if you're a hockey fan where you would go with this one, but we'll see. As a kid, your favorite sports team was? Yeah, well, I guess it had to be the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, had to be. But it wasn't really by choice. It was just the Well, no the one chooses sport. the Canucks. It's just <laughs> <laughs> like it's, you're there. Why not? I mean, I lived in Victoria and I'm a Calgary fan, so it kind of it just, you know, that was fun. But I swear I met more Edmonton fans in Victoria than I met Canucks fans, so it was it was a weird place, but hey. Yeah, I don't know the people from Victoria are from Vancouver usually. Maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah, they just they just look over and go, nah, don't want to go for them, right? <laughs> go for Edmonton instead. <laughs> They're going to go jump on the Seattle train this season, let's be honest. Like, hey, (laughs) city's basically the same distance, so we don't want to go for the Canucks. Let's get on the Kraken. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, I just realized that uh, we answered a couple of these questions. So You are thinking uh, you literally were were asking this at the bottom half and you were confusing me. My brother's all over the place. So here we go. Here's the final question. If you could live anywhere in the world, it would be? Oh, that is just so hard because (laughs) I live in Kelowna, BC and that's where my home and my heart is. 
So I think I'm always going to be like, this is going to be my home home. But if I could like temporarily live other places, I would, but I will always come back to here. So I would live in Melbourne. I would live in, uh, yeah, Melbourne would be great. Honestly, I do love Melbourne. Um, my, my husband and I go through this conversation often, like where else should we consider living? And then we just, just keep coming back to here because uh, I'm looking outside and it's sunny and the sky is blue and it's like perfect running temperature. And then we're looking forward to ski season. We've got an amazing ski mountain an hour away. The summers are hot. There's great wine here. There's boating, there's lakes. Like how can you beat all of that, right? My, my first memory, like as uh, back to the naive Australian and kind of coming to Canada and, and not realizing the extent of say the wildlife, I, I was there for a wedding and it was at a, a golf course. And going into the the building, the first sign that I see is this massive sign: "Caution, bears on course." <laughs> and I like part of me was like, "Wow, cool bears!" And then I'm like, "Actually, doesn't sound cool. Don't know how I feel about here." So that was my first experience of Kelowna when I went there. I, I, I totally thought. I totally thought Ben was going to tell the story about the first time I had to put on ski pants, but that's uh, maybe for a different episode. Don't bring up my skiing. <laughs> it's embarrassing enough, all right? We've got a summer Olympian today, Colin. Like it's, you know, save that for the winters. Um, Linda, I love go. skiing here. I look, uh, yeah, I, I tried for two seconds, wimped out. There's the short story. Um, if people want to follow your journey, sort of stay up to date with what, what you're doing and kind of uh, keep up to date with everything as well, uh, social media, website, where can people sort of uh, stay up to date with what you're up to? Oh, yeah, I'm in the current world now. So I have a website and it's my name, lindyelmore.com. And I started a YouTube channel and I do little running videos, like um, just little like eight, ten minute tips on running. Um, so that's cool if people want to subscribe to that. And then, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, it's all my name. It's And my name Simple. is not like, I don't have to worry about other people having my name, so it's great. <laughs> There's only one, the, the, so Melindy Hellmore. You could just shorten it and kind of Madonna style, keep it Melindy and just, yeah. just yeah, Melindy. Yeah, I actually, I've met other, not really met other Melindies, but occasionally someone will reach out to me with the same name and we'll connect. This go. is the one here, win or learn with Melindy Elmore. Yeah, got it. Yes. There we go. I'm already Look subscribed. He's just there you using, go. using this to just boom. I need to improve you know? my results. I mean, I'm, I'm at 150. I got to get to that 111 area for the half marathon. <laughs> you're under two hours. I don't think I'm under 10 hours for a half marathon. <laughs> talk about improving your time you by start. eight minutes. Eight hours is where I'm going to go. <laughs> Here's the secret. Run twice a day every day. Don't get hurt. You'll run faster. Okay. He's like, well, that easy. I'll, I'll see you in Paris 2024. God. <laughs> uh, it was great to have you here, Melindy. And uh, we actually are legitimately excited to see uh, you possibly in Paris. And, um, you know, I'm sure that's the goal already. I'm hoping, crossing my fingers. Oh, Paris is 100% the goal. I didn't mention that Paris is also one of my very favorite cities. I did a semester abroad there. Um, and I'm super excited because my kids will be able to come. I mean, we're really hoping that COVID is behind us by then. Uh, but it was kind of a bummer that they couldn't come to this Olympics because that was one of my motivators to to go to the games uh, with, you know, they were a big part of the journey. So I'd love to be able to have them on the sidelines in a couple of years from now. Also, if in between now and Paris, if you're looking for a little bit of training, Manitoba Marathon every single year, feel free to wait for me at the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely connect with you if I end up doing that race again. And 
huge thanks to Melindy. Um, I, I, I seriously did. You saw that. I subscribed immediately because I always get excited when we have any type of track stars in here because it is the only sport that I semi-compete in. You know, not necessarily competitive to an Olympic level, but uh, I love to get pointers and stuff like that. And, you know, hearing that her her husband and her both coached before, I'm like, we can learn a lot from Melindy. Let's make sure to have her back on here the next time that we want to run a race. There's a T-shirt. We can learn a lot from Melindy. There you go. Has to, has to put that on a T-shirt. Melindy, if you're listening, please give us a cut of that. Yeah, I mean, well, she's not because we told people to stop listening after the interview. So no one's listening <laughs> at this point except for us. But, um, I mean, it's interesting when we do have guests on the show from a sport that we're familiar with in some level that would say we've competed in. And obviously we're not competing in the Olympics, but, you know, like you obviously do a bit of running, you know, when we talk to people from field hockey, I, I grew up playing that, you know, we had Simon Leon recently. I played a bit of badminton, you know, kind of these sort of things where you, you can kind of relate, but not relate. You know, it's, mm. it's kind of like we can say we're podcast hosts. We're the same as Joe Rogan. Well, you know, um, <laughs> one well, of us has we- listeners and the other is a massive douche. Hello, Joe. But um, oh, I thought you talking about me and you. I'm like, which one am I? Well, you know, open to interpretation. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's it, fascinating. And, and one thing I'll say that I always enjoy having you on, Colin, for these interviews is that A, I don't have to do as much work. And B, particularly when it's a Canadian, that I, I'm learning along the same way because obviously I do my research, as he says, not having done it beforehand, he said it before the interview. But it's it's a case of learning and kind of going along the way as well with that. So, um, yeah. But just kind of say two things. Pay attention to your children and stop trying to make friends with our guests. They don't want to hang out with you in Winnipeg. No one wants to hang out with you in Winnipeg. It's Winnipeg, all right? No one wants to hang out with you there. It's not It's not me personally. It's just the city. That's the problem. Yeah, I love I love that question of uh, we, of course, ended on the, you know, what would be a dream place to live? I wanted to say, I'm like, I have yet to hear Winnipeg answered. I wonder why. Well, it's the first time I've heard Kelowna answer. I mean, like, no disrespect to Kelowna was a nice city when I went there, but... I don't know if that would be the top of my list of places to live in Canada, but I guess, hey, I'm not a Canadian, so people might choose Hobart, and I'd be like, why? Why? Why would you choose Hobart? So, you know, I feel like we're just closing this out by dissing Melinda's choices. No, that's not what we're doing. (laughs) Forget about why Winnipeg, why Hobart, why off the podium? Melinda's got on a YouTube channel. Stop listening to to this crap. We didn't even make the podium for the top uh, Olympic podcast in the world. We were off the podium. No, we we came in. We came in Melinda's Pan Am Games position. We came in fourth place. That's that means the maple, the maple medal. Right. 18 years from now, we're yeah. going to be a top three podcast. We're number do, do four think, right now. Can I just quickly ask, do you think that Feedspot did that to be a dick to us? They made us number four because like, they're called <laughs> off the podium, so this makes sense. Like, Yeah, you go. well, you know what? I, I, I think it's just appropriate. We really were number one. They just decided it's more fitting to be a number four. <laughs> Hashtag really number one. Uh, <laughs> that's that's our slogan. We're really yeah. like, it was in four years' time when, you know, number three gets tested for drug cheating, we will get our bronze. Uh, you know, we'll finally go up the medal tally. So, yes, come on, test test those microphones for extra wattage. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have plenty more to come as we get very close to Beijing. We're counting down the hours now, I'm going to say. It might be hundreds <laughs> or thousands of hours, but we're counting down the hours. We're getting closer. Countdown has started. Uh, summer, winter, we don't discriminate. Paralympics, we'll throw a little bit of everything in there. So keep listening and go back and listen to a lot of our last interview. At, at this point, we're at multiple episodes per week uh, because we we don't know what else to do with it. <laughs> we don't want to hold off on these for a year. Uh, go back. You're going to find something interesting. Uh, if you listen to this one, another good one, let's just throw a plug out there right now. We talked about Evan Dunphy in here. 
go back and listen to the Evan Dunphy interview. We we talked to Abdi uh, several months ago. Uh, that was episode number 101. Uh, go more more marathon interviews. So we've, we're going to keep bringing new sports. And uh, do you have the count? You say you've been working on one? Uh, the, the of different sports, Colin. Which ones? Um, well, how many we how many we have covered versus how many are left? Uh, look, it maybe hasn't been updated since yesterday when I did a few. But um, in terms <laughs> of summer, I think we're uh, roughly up to about twenty three or so. Um, and for winter, I mean, at least at the time of recording this. Uh, there's only two sports that we have never had anybody on from, um, and wow. I, I, I think I tested you on this. Do you want to be? Do you want to trivia this? Do you remember those two sports that we have not had people on from? I don't remember. I don't remember to spend time with my children as we just found true, out. So true. how am I going to well, remember that? <laughs> well, ski jumping. We've not had anyone from ski jumping, and oh, we've yeah. not had anyone from long track. Now, obviously, I could combine like short and long track because it's the same sport but different, but. Uh, I keep well, long track separate from short track, so we haven't had a long track have, speed skater. Have we technically had 50% of uh, Well, I was thinking that, but, I mean, then if, you know, you look at Chloe, do we have to then all of a sudden take, well, we've yeah. had, you know, one-fifth of an equestrian rider on the show, so, <laughs> you know, that doesn't count. So, yeah, but I look, um, we're, we're, we're collectors on this show. We, we want to tick off the bucket list, so uh, not only will we tick those off, we eventually will get a breakdancing athlete on before uh, Paris. <laughs> well, I'm seriously, we will be. We will be like yeah. we, we got sports climbers on before before uh, Tokyo. So our goal is to talk to somebody and explain to us why breakdancing is an Olympic sport. So yes. So if you're out there and you're a breakdancing fan, hook us up with somebody. Give us your recommendations. And um, when cheerleading gets officially confirmed as a sport in LA, this podcast officially becomes off the cheerleading podium, and that's all we're yeah. going to focus on. <laughs> that's what Ben's been waiting for. Yeah. Uh, make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or Instagram. We got a YouTube channel. It's not nearly as impressive as. <laughs> Stop liking the YouTube channel. It hasn't been updated since 2016. We've been talking about it with I think this entire year. We've even said on episodes. You know what? We're gonna have a YouTube channel. We soon. will. We will, and we're gonna do it, but not yet. <laughs> It'll Wait. Come. Both our listeners are excited. They're oh, it's like they're on YouTube. What's this? Episode two from 2016, previewing the Rio Olympics. Oh, bit slow on the uploads there and off the podium. Yeah, they're all there. They're just slowly uploading. Yeah, we'll get I've got very slow internet. It's very yeah. slow. Let's, let's right? just say, Briz, let's make it more realistic. We'll have them by Brisbane. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Did you just call it Brisbane? Learn how to pronounce Brisbane, our city's calling. Brisbane. Brisbane. I, Brisbane. Know, <laughs> I, I went out of my way to pronounce it on the last one as Brisbane, and then I totally slipped up today. It's like so North American. Next to Melbourne. Um, yeah, Melbourne. Winnipeg. Is that what we can call it? Uh, <laughs> um... Just subscribe to our show. We will have some good stuff. You don't have this to listen to us This episode's a marathon. Jesus, people have tuned out long. Like, come on. I feel like I'm Noah hosting right now. How do I end this thing? All right. I mean, drinks Thank you have you. tonight, Colin. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and go left. Turn your Japanese up and-